This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Tim Weiner, who's the author of One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard Nixon, explores President Nixon's troubled legacy. Then PW Associate Children's Books editor Natasha Gilmore hits the highlights of PW's children's announcements issue for the fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And I, I, I think there's probably no surprises at all on the fiction list. Well, I, I... certainly not at the number one spot. It's Go Set a Watchman by Harper <laughs> Lee. I think we all did see that coming. But the numbers are staggering, staggering. 746,000 copies logged by Nielsen Bookscan in, in hardcover in one week. Who knows how many it sold digitally, uh, how many were sold by places that BookScan doesn't track. What what a phenomenon. It's amazing. And and we were looking at the list and we saw that even the large print was selling well. Yeah, the large print edition shows up, uh, sold a couple thousand copies in hardcover and uh, also in trade paperback. It's at num- number three on the trade paperback list, selling another 10,000 copies there. So everybody wants to yeah. read this book and uh to kill a mockingbird has yep. predictably gotten quite a boost uh, last week it was at number 39 on the list the hardcover list and this week it's at number 12 uh, selling about six thousand copies over wow. the course of the week so uh lee is certainly doing very well for herself <laughs> even as people continue to say not necessarily positive things about the book but it's sparking right. some very interesting conversations yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. To give a sense of um, why those numbers are so extraordinary, the number two book on the list, which is The Girl on the Train, which has been selling extremely well quite consistently for half a year now, uh, sold 30,000 copies in one week. And mm-hmm. um, usually for a book that's been on the list 27 weeks, that would just knock us over. But the year-to-date sales on the girl on the train uh, are 940,000. And so in just one week, uh, Go Set a Watchman has already out-phenomenoned the phenomenon. Wow. Uh, It's pretty, pretty incredible. And I mean, like I said, when To Kill a Mockingbird is up at number 12 on the list with just 6,700 copies sold. So just those, those numbers on Go Set a Watchman are stratospheric. And yeah. uh, a lot of people are comparing it to Grey, which is the new E.L. James book that's been out for uh, five weeks now. And Grey sold 87,000 copies in trade paperback again. Really right. extraordinary. And right now, according to Nielsen, they're cl- up to close to a million. Mm-hmm. Yep. Year to date sales are, at, again, about 950,000 in yeah. five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's quite an exciting summer. For book publishers, it's great. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is, this is one of those years where you know 
the wonderful thing about this industry is that um, those profits will be funneled into supporting other authors. Right. As, as the publishers bring that money in, they can then send it back out to maybe take some chances that they wouldn't have been able to afford to right. take. Yeah. So in a couple of years, who knows, maybe those publishers will suddenly be turning out some really interesting avant-garde stuff because they can afford to. Right. So everybody benefits. And uh, we'll have to look on the list uh, next week at Children's to see how the new Dr. Seuss did. So that's another yes. exciting wow. uh, news. So yeah. yeah, lots of stuff going on. What a summer. Well, yeah. um, just going down the list to the slightly more mundane titles, at number three is Armada by Ernest Klein. And again, this is going back to the hardcover fiction list. Mm-hmm. Um, sold about 18,000 copies. It's first week out. He's known as the author of Ready Player One which is uh, made quite a splash when it came out, uh, kind of straddling the science fiction literary divide, um, but certainly a lot of science fiction right. fans have claimed him as their own. This one uh, suggests that uh, the X-Files you know, sort of scenario, the, that there's the truth is out there, but it's been covered up about aliens, uh, was a, is actually a fictional cover-up created to cover up a real mm. cover-up. Right. Uh, right. So it's... Uh, and this, it's our review says that uh, Klein makes this kind of paranoia intriguing, but that uh, as the novel goes on, the plot holes get harder to ignore. So, okay. uh, yeah, unfortunately, flawed, but uh, certainly got some potential. Right. So that's at number three. And uh, then going down the list, we hit the usual crop of thrillers. There's at number seven is Naked Greed by Stuart Woods. This is the 34th Stone Barrington novel uh, featuring the suave cop turned attorney in New York City and uh, you know we <laughs> there, there's uh, apparently when one picks up a book called Naked Greed which has a woman's bare legs on the cover they might expect some explicit material but according to our review uh, it's actually handled in a strangely coy uh, okay. fashion. So uh, readers may take a moment to realize what's going on. Right. Uh, so uh, nakedness is a theme. Uh, at number 25 is The Naked Eye by Iris Johansson, uh, co-written with Roy Johansson, uh, who's Iris's son. Uh, this is the third novel featuring Kendra Michaels, a law enforcement consultant with very acute senses of smell and hearing. So it's almost a superhero novel right. in, in a way, but um, certainly done up as a thriller. And uh, you know, conveniently... She's joined by uh, Beth, the sister of Eve Duncan, who is the star of Iris Johansson's main series. So that's a nice little crossover there Great. for the fans. Uh, at number 26, we have After the Storm by Linda Castillo. And this is her seventh Amish thriller. Um, not mm. not words you see together too often. Right. Uh, but she makes it work in a little town in Ohio. And we say that um, not counting the gripping prologue, readers are halfway through the book before the p- townspeople of Painter's Mill are threatened by even one violent act. And yet she somehow manages to keep the tension building. Uh, with personal stress, hidden family secrets, and unlikely murderers and murder weapons. Oh, great. So uh, that's what's been happening on the fiction list. Uh, it, it really, that, that, big, that big book at the top really does make it hard to tear your eyes away and look at the rest. But yeah. Yeah, this time of year, there's always some 
other big titles hitting the yeah, shelves. Yeah, exactly. Still, still summer reading. We've yeah. got a nonfiction number two. I was happy to see uh, "Between the World and Me" by Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, and it's uh, this is his uh, letter to his son. Uh, was excerpted in the Atlantic, where he's the um, senior editor there, senior writer. And uh, this one, I was really pleased to see that it sold twenty five thousand copies in mm-hmm. its first week. I mean, it's a really, really great numbers for for the book. So, and uh, we gave it a starred review. We gave it a starred review, and we say this is a book that will be hailed as a classic of our time. So. There you have it. At number seven, we have The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America by Arthur C. Brooks. Uh, he's economist and president of the American Enterprise Institute, uh, which is a uh, right think tank, intellectual think tank. So that's at number seven. Number 14, uh, sports memoir, It's Good to Be Gronk. Yes, it is. <laughs> Rob Gronkowski of the uh, New England Patriots uh, writes his book about his uh, family, his uh, life as a football player, and he's a really uh, colorful uh, person <laughs> as well. So that's number 14. Uh, I want to say lots of Patriots fans are buying this, but I think lots of football fans as well. Next up, number 18, uh, we have Straight to Hell, True Tales of Deviance, Debauchery, and Billion Dollar Deals. John LaFavre writes for uh, Business Insider and has been interviewed by, uh, as we say, a plethora of news outlets. And this is a raunchy, irreverent stream of poor judgment statements supposedly overheard in the Goldman Sachs elevator, though, in fact, most were not. So this is something that a book deal had come out this uh, um, and there was, a, there was a bit of controversy around it, but they're still published uh, And in the end, we say, equal parts fun and train wreck. This is a tale engineered to astonish anyone who wondered which fools were behind the crash of 2008. And at number 21, I, something from the Capo Press. It's a, it's a something I didn't expect to see. And this is a memoir by a death metal singer from the uh, band Lamb of God, which is from, uh, they're from Virginia. And uh, this is talking about uh, his arrest in 2012 in the Czech Republic uh, for, he was being held responsible for a fan who died after falling off or him pushing a fan off the stage a few years before. Uh, so he spent time in this 123-year-old institution that was a, actually a Nazi's uh, torture units were set up there. And this is a book wow. that had come up and... Um, yeah, I was really surprised to see this at number 21, but uh, um, big what's, audience what's for it. the title? I'm sorry, it's called Dark Days, a memoir by Randall Blythe. Wow, so uh, that's that sounds even grimmer than one might expect from a memoir by the someone involved in a metal band. Right, exactly, exactly. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, I had heard something about the yeah. story, but you're right, it is a little bit of an unlikely candidate for the bestseller list. Yeah. Yeah, readers will surprise you every time. Yeah, exactly. Nice to see the surprise. Absolutely. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Tim Weiner tells us why President Nixon was even worse than we think. We'll be right back. I'm Kate Bolick, author of Spinster, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Tim Weiner on the line. His new book is One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard Nixon. Hello, Tim. So glad you could join us. 
My pleasure. So the publication of your book is perfectly timed with the uh, 40th anniversary of Nixon's uh, resignation. But, but when was it that you decided to write about the former president and why? Well, Richard Nixon was my president. He took office when I was 12 and he fell when I was 18. And I vividly remember his dark scowl glowing out of our black and white television set growing up as the Vietnam War raged on. It made a lasting impression upon me. As I worked uh, during three decades as a reporter covering uh, national security, uh, covering the CIA, covering the State Department, covering the Pentagon, the legacy of Richard Nixon lived on because of the way he fought the Vietnam War and, of course, the way he fought uh, his domestic enemies as well. Over there, he used B-52 bombers. At home, he used bugs, break-ins, black bag jobs, burglaries to fight his domestic enemies who opposed not only the war, but Nixon himself. Uh, Just less than three years ago, I was out at the Richard Nixon uh, Presidential Library in California giving a speech based on my last book, Enemies, about uh, the FBI and the relationship between Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover. The archivist came up to me after the speech and said, listen, we know your work, Uh, we trust you, we're going to let you in on a little secret. By the end of 2014, all the tapes, and there were 800 remaining hours of secret White House tapes that had never been released, all the tapes and all the classified documentation from the Nixon White House will be out. I thought to myself, "Uh uh-huh, that's my next book. Yep. Yeah, sure. So uh, President Carter was the president I grew up with around uh, age 12. And uh, you say in your introduction, for those who lived under Nixon, it is worse than you may recollect. For those too young to recall, it is worse than you can imagine. Talk to us about that. Well, those of us who lived through it saw, for the first and only time in American history, a president resigning in disgrace. Those who didn't live through it can't imagine how much turmoil the country was in as we approached our bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of America. Uh, And Nixon ran on a campaign slogan, bring us together. In fact, he tore us apart uh, and left lasting scars on the American body politic. But the fact is, so much material was still classified Uh, until after the turn of the century, that we have a whole new perspective now based on documents declassified just in the last decade on what really went on, how Nixon really fought the war in Vietnam, and how he really thought, spoke, felt, and acted. Uh, And it is worse than anyone remembers. And can you give us an example of uh, of maybe one of these uh, uh, atrocities (laughs) of Nixon? Well, the the newly released tapes, the last of which were only released uh, nine months ago, give us uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of Nixon speaking as the Watergate crisis closes in on him and the possibility of impeachment grows. What we hear, especially late at night and after midnight, is a president ravaged by insomnia, which he treated with alcohol. Bad idea. Uh, A president realizing that the power that he had spent 
more than a quarter of a century uh, seeking to gather uh, and seeking to wield was slipping from his hands. Uh, an incoherent, nearly insane man who was the most powerful man on earth. And it is bone chilling to hear those tapes. And it is bone chilling to reconstruct how close we were to losing precious aspects of American democracy during the Nixon years. Amazing. Why were these tapes held for so long? Where were they Uh held? And um... (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nixon took them with him when he left, except for about 40 hours that had been successfully subpoenaed by the Watergate uh, special prosecutor. And in fact, one of those tapes, known as the smoking gun tape, Mm -hmm. recorded six days after the Watergate break-in in June 1972. These were Nixon's gang of washed-up FBI and CIA agents who broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters uh, five months before the 1972 presidential election. Six days after the break-in, Nixon is ordering the CIA to tell the FBI to back off of the Watergate investigation because it's national security. It's a secret. And that is obstruction of justice, a federal crime. Uh, And it led, when that tape was finally exposed by order of the Supreme Court, an eight-zip ruling two years after the fact, Nixon was forced to resign. But this particular crime, the Watergate break-in, was only one of many events that Nixon's attorney general and campaign manager, John Mitchell, who later went to prison for his involvement, called, in his words, the White House horrors. So another one of those horrors uh, was Nixon's role in the Vietnam War. And you write about uh, his discussions around using nuclear weapons on the North Vietnamese. Tell us a little bit more about that, about what you learned from these tapes about that. Nixon on six different occasions discussed the use of nuclear weapons to settle the Vietnam War once and for all. Uh, Of course, there has been a taboo on the use of nuclear weapons since they were used for the first time to end World War II by uh, dropping them on Japan. He wanted his enemies to think that he was, in his own words, capable of anything, a madman. And he sent signals, including nuclear alerts, Uh, that the Soviets, now the Russians, and the Chinese and the North Vietnamese would pick up to indicate that he was capable of of that, of the ultimate weapon. Uh, This makes for terrifying listening and terrifying reading as well. Yeah, I I can imagine. So these signals um, weren't even necessarily about his true intentions. They were just to show people he saw as his enemies, that anything was possible, that he was a loose cannon? Uh, He wanted his enemies to think that he was a madman. Uh, And his chief of staff, uh, H.R. Haldeman, and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, uh, heard this kind of talk uh, on a half a dozen occasions. And there was one occasion... uh, late in the Nixon presidency in the fall of 1973, when there was a genuine crisis. There was a war raging in the Middle East. Uh, The Soviets were shipping nuclear warheads to Egypt. 
the Americans were sending an, uh, an emergency airlift of weapons to Israel, and a very stern message came in from Moscow on the hotline saying, if you don't work to settle this war, we'll do it ourselves. Uh, Nixon's highest national security advisors, uh, the head of the CIA, the head of the Pentagon, Kissinger, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, met in the White House Situation Room in the basement to discuss this crisis. But Nixon was non-compost mentis. He was in the White House residence too drunk to talk. And so these unelected officials raised the nuclear alert level to the highest level short of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is one step short of actual warfare uh, on their own, because uh, the president was, uh, in Kissinger's words, quote, loaded, unquote. Uh, This is the kind of constitutional crisis that became, we now know, an almost daily event during the Nixon uh, during Nixon's second term. And in listening to these tapes, I mean, did his what was his voice like on the tapes? Was he? Uh, it uh, depended was it on of... whether he was uh, uh, rested and alert, or exhausted and uh, intoxicated. Wow! So, and you could tell the difference by listening. Oh yes. Uh, in the latter case, he's slurring. He's making incredibly inappropriate. Uh, jokes about uh, the use of power. Uh, he's kind of like uh, the Red Queen and Alice in Wonderland shouting off with their heads. And um, you also write that Nixon would drink toasts and sign treaties with the men who were arming his enemies. A lot of this sounds like it just it doesn't even make sense. Well, it made sense if you understood Nixon's grand strategy, which was he was going to try and settle the Vietnam War by going to the Kremlin, which he did, mm-hmm. and by going to China. This is why Nixon went to China. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. To try and talk with the world's most powerful communist leaders about a grand strategy that would convince uh, the communist forces of North Vietnam to settle the, the war on terms favorable to the United States. In fact, Saigon fell and America lost the war in Vietnam eight months after Nixon fell. Mm-hmm. Now, you, the, Nixon and then Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger debated you know, the war crimes in Vietnam. Could you tell us about those exchanges? Um, well, this was an occasion where they are openly discussing, and this is all on tape, mm-hmm. all transcribed, the use of nuclear weapons to destroy the irrigation dikes that supported uh, food and agriculture in North Vietnam, which was a peasant nation. Mm-hmm. And Kissinger flatly says that 200,000 civilians would die if they bombed the Red River dikes. And Nixon's response is, have you got a nuclear weapon ready to do that if we need it? Wow. Just so, uh, so cold. And, and Kissinger's, uh, what was he like? Uh, what was his voice like on uh, his response on these? <laughs> Well, Kissinger, who is uh, one of the last two surviving members of Nixon's cabinet, he is 93, right. um, used a combination of flattery to Nixon's face and brutality behind the scenes. Wow. Uh, he was the s- tactician. Nixon was the strategist. Uh, Kissinger... Um, though he was the national security counselor before he was uh, appointed secretary of state, 
the man in charge of national security, was personally very insecure. Hmm. Uh, he was a German-Jewish refugee from World War II. Uh, Nixon was openly contemptuous about Jews to his face. Um, and he had to use a combination of his own personal genius, which is unquestioned, um, flattery and outright falsehood, uh, to try and execute the president's strategy, strategies. Uh, he was brilliant, but he was also brutal. And how much of this was about Kissinger's own aspirations for power? I mean, as as an immigrant, there was only so far he could have risen, but there he was, you know, two, two heartbeats away from the presidency. Well, under the Constitution, if you were, were born in abroad, as, Nick's, as uh, Kissinger was, you cannot become president. But there came a time in 1973 where uh, that posed a real problem. Uh, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, had uh, pleaded no contest to charges of tax evasion, evading taxes on bribes that he took while he was vice president uh, from uh, contractors in Maryland where he had been the governor. So there's no vice president. Mm-hmm. Next in line of succession under the Constitution of the Speaker of the House, who was an alcoholic and went into rehab later that year. Next in line is the President Pro Tempore of the Senate, who was a doddering Mississippi plantation racist. Couldn't possibly serve as president. And the next in line is the Secretary of State, Kissinger, who cannot serve under the Constitution. So you have a president who is uh, one step away from formal impeachment proceedings, and there's no one really in the line of succession who is qualified to succeed him. Those are the kind of constitutional crises that became everyday events during the second Nixon administration. Now, when you were listening to these tapes, was was, uh, your mouth just open agape, or was there something that you had uh, thought that you had speculated or thought that would come out that you were like, oh, yes, of course, that makes sense? I was riveted because I thought I knew a lot about Richard Nixon when I started out to write this book. I had written about his uh, uh, command and control of the CIA uh, in my history of the CIA legacy of ashes. Um, I'd written about his uh, uh, struggles with J. Edgar Hoover, uh, uh, who ran the FBI, in my book about the FBI enemies. And, uh, you know, I think I've, I had read pretty much every book about Richard right, right. that had ever been written. But sure. these tapes blew my mind. I'll be candid. Uh as I wrote, it, it was worse than I knew. Uh, we, our American democracy, had been turned into something more uh, like a British parliamentary democracy where you have a king uh, and a parliament that can rise and fall uh, at the king's behest and a court system that can be uh, uh, eradicated by, by the king's magnet. Now, we fought a revolution against the British and their mad king in the 18th century to establish an American democracy where power was separated between the president, the Congress, and the courts. And Nixon thought that in times of war crisis, and by the way, an up-and-coming aide to Richard Nixon, Dick Cheney, mm. thought the same and, and uh, has said so on the record, that in times of war and crisis, the president becomes more like a king. 
Uh, and in court, when Nixon was fighting court orders to turn over his tapes, his lawyer said uh, to the judge, the president wants me to argue that he is a monarch like Louis XIV only four years at a time. Wow. Now, yes, quote unquote. Wow. And that's why we fought a revolution, so that we wouldn't serve under a king. And the concentration of power in the hands of a man who was increasingly unstable posed a clear and present danger to American democracy. If Nixon had not resigned, he would have been impeached. If he had not been pardoned by his successor, President Ford, he would have been indicted for obstruction of justice and tried. Oh, so intense. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tim Weiner, author of One Man Against the World, who's telling us some pretty mind-blowing stuff about Richard Nixon. So he recorded these tapes himself. What was his rationale for doing that? First, he believed that he would always be the sole possessor of these tapes. Only four people knew that this system existed, this taping system and that he would write a post-presidential memoir that would make him millions of dollars. That's one. Two, he wanted the tapes as evidence to protect himself against the inevitable memoirs of Henry Kissinger. Uh, no one writes a memoir, a Washington memoir, in which he comes off as a fool or uh, uh, anything less than the smartest man in the room. Right. Uh, and... Uh, some, he installed them. Now, there were precedents. LBJ recorded his phone calls. JFK had a taping system uh, that he could turn off and on. Nixon was so physically awkward, and this is his chief of staff, H.R. Uh, Haldeman, uh, saying so, that he couldn't be relied on to flip a switch <laughs> or wow. flip it off, so that the taping system he installed was voice-activated. Uh-huh. And it's clear that at times he forgot it was there mm. because he says such self-incriminating things on these tapes, like the president could be regarded as, quote, a repressive fascist, unquote, or the president could be impeached, quote, unquote, referring to himself. Mm -hmm. um, and he... <laughs> When the existence of the tapes was revealed in the summer of 1973 during the Watergate hearing, at a time, again, when I said four people knew of their existence, mm. Nixon wrote himself a bedside memoir. He suddenly uh, uh, was uh, hospitalized uh, as soon as this word came out with uh, uh, what was diagnosed as viral pneumonia in the summer of 1973. And he wrote himself a memo uh, by his bedside table that said, should have destroyed the tapes. <laughs> wow. uh, uh, because the tapes had not been heard, only their existence had been revealed. Right. So then there began a great de debate. Should we destroy the tapes? And uh, Nixon could have, and he might have gotten away with it. 
but no one else could. And <laughs> Nixon's advisors are debating this very question uh, about whether to build a bonfire on the White House lawn uh, and destroy the tapes 4,000 hours worth. And someone said, in fact, it was uh, uh, his lawyer, his White House lawyer, Len Garment, who's going to strike the match, King Timahoe? King Timahoe was the president's uh, not very faithful Irish setter. <laughs> <laughs> so from 1973 until, I, I mean, I think... You had said that up until the most recent uh, tapes were uh, uh, brought to attention nine months ago. Where were they? They were in the well. They were in Nixon's custody until he died twenty right. years after he fell in nineteen ninety four. And then a very brave and very wonderful historian named Stanley Cutler, uh, who just died this past April, marvelous man. Uh, filed a lawsuit against the government and against the National Archives, saying, under law, these tapes belong to the people of the United States and to the National Archives and must be released. Wow. And, and he won. Good for him. Uh, yes. Wow. Uh, that was a battle royal. But then began the incredibly painstaking process of listening <laughs> to these tapes. There are no official transcripts and deciding what can and cannot be declassified, because there's not only a question of uh, personally embarrassing things, which you're not supposed to release, but questions of national security, which are inevitably raised by the CIA, the State Department, the Pentagon. And so, as I say, Nixon held on to these uh, for 20 years, from the time he fell until the time he died in 1994. Then came a years-long court struggle. And then finally came the first trickle of releases. As I say, 1% of these 4,000 hours had come out uh, during the uh, Watergate investigation and the impeachment process. And that was enough to sink Nixon's presidency. Uh, and it took 20 years uh, for the pig to go through the python, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> uh, until the last of them were released. Um, I had a newspaper editor once who said, the greatest stories don't break, they ooze. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it took a very, very long time under law uh, for these tapes, which like all government records after 30 years, are supposed to be released, warts and all, to the American people. And that includes the records of the CIA, the Pentagon, the State Department, for the tapes to be released. And then you've got to listen to them and transcribe them. Mm. So there must have been so many people who were recorded by these tapes who had no idea that they were being recorded, who might have revealed personal information, uh, and who are, at least in some way, perhaps innocent parties. How, how is or, that or handled? Whom the president defamed. Well, yes, absolutely. Right. You know, and he, he, he might have revealed anyone else's secrets without realizing or remembering or caring that there was a recording running? Well, for example, I mean, one of the last things to be declassified that wasn't a question of national security was Nixon calling the Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first black man to sit on the Supreme Court, uh, stupid because he was black. Mm. That, that kind of racism and, and, and slurring of people, um, uh, very, hard, very tough pills to swallow. Uh, but in the, the end, they're out now, and uh, 
in One Man Against the World, uh, some of these tapes are uh, uh, published for the first time. So what is uh, the legacy of Nixon's presidency? <laughs> it is all around us. First of all, a generation of the Republican right arose through Nixon. I've mentioned Dick Cheney, right. uh, who was uh, tasked at a very young age with tearing down the pillars of LBJ's great society, the welfare programs, uh, uh, education programs. Um, he rose so fast that he became uh, the chief of staff to Gerald Ford, who succeeded Nixon. Mm-hmm. Alongside him was Donald Rumsfeld, who also uh, was assigned to tear down the uh, pillars of the great society. He rose so fast that he became the Secretary of Defense, as did Cheney, under Ford. Mm. Um, and uh, William Rehnquist uh, was appointed to the Supreme Court. He had been an obscure uh, Justice Department official, um, and he served more than three decades on the Supreme Court, including uh, two decades as Chief Justice, and moved the court inalterably to the right. Behind him, succeeding him in the post of the White House uh, Office of Legal Counsel, appointed by Nixon, was a young lawyer named Antonin Scalia, uh, who got his first taste of power under Nixon. And we all know that he is uh, uh, the most uh, articulate voice of the far right on the Supreme Court. Uh, Six secretaries of state, six secretaries of defense, uh, six uh, directors and, and acting directors of the CIA, Um, and as John Mitchell, campaign manager, attorney general, and later convicted federal felon, predicted accurately uh, early in Nixon's first term, this country is going to go so far to the right that you won't recognize it. And so the uh, political tectonic shift that began under Nixon uh, has continued nearly half a century later. So your first book, uh, Blank Check, The Pentagon's Black Budget, was based on a series of articles for the New York Times, for which you received the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, from from that book, how did the ideas for your future books come about? Were they also based on reporting you'd been doing or um, some serendipitous encounters like the one you had in California? Um, that was 25 years ago. Uh, with your first book, you learn how to write a book or how not to write a book. (laughs) Mm. And uh, with your second book, uh, you learn a little bit more about structure, chronology, and character. My third book, Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, which I'm I'm proud to say won the National Book Award uh, eight years ago, um, was based on 20 years of reporting of covering the CIA. So at a certain point, you reach uh, a critical mass of knowledge Writing is a craft. It's a trade. Anyone can learn how to write a simple declarative sentence, although frighteningly few people do. <laughs> yeah. But um, learning to write a book is uh, more of an art. Uh, anyone can uh, learn how to type. But uh, learning how to write a book takes, takes a few tries before you get it right. And what about the difference between uh, writing as a reporter and writing as a book author? Well, for one thing, the deadlines are daily when you're on <laughs> newspaper. Teaches you discipline. Uh, 
And, and so uh, the prospect of hanging uh, clarifies the mind, as Dr. Johnson said, <laughs> concentrates the mind. Right. Uh, there's a reason they call it a deadline. If you miss it, you're dead. <laughs> I, n- I never thought of that. I thought of it quite that way. You do every day when, when you right. have one. Yeah. Uh, the deadline for a book is determined by the book itself. Okay? Uh, all you need to know is that the most essential element of a book is a back cover. The story has to have a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm. Uh, for me, because of my training of 30 years as a newspaper reporter now, nearly you know, 10 years as someone who, who writes books for a living, um, is that there is no logic for me except chronologic. The only way to tell a story is from a beginning to middle to an end in time. We write history through the rearview mirror on a bright sunny day, but people live looking through the windshield, and it's a dark and stormy night, and the road is muddy, and the windshield wipers aren't working, and they don't necessarily know where they're going. And so you have to put yourself in their shoes and see the world through their eyes. And this is why primary documents, tapes, uh, meetings of records, uh, uh, the, 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 act, the document itself, from real time is so crucial to me because you can experience the world as the participants are experiencing it in real time and tell your readers what they really thought, what they really said, and what they really did. We've been talking with Tim Weiner, and you can find his book, One Man Against the World, in stores right now. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very illuminating. It's been a pleasure, and uh, Publishers Weekly is, is an essential voice in the world of books. And I thank you for everything uh, we've said and done during this past uh, half hour. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's very kind. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, Natasha Gilmore, tells us what's hot in children's and young adult literature in the fall, so stay tuned. I'm Eric Burns, the author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, Natasha Gilmore, is here to tell us all about our shiny new children's book announcements issue. Hi, Natasha. Hello. So it is indeed very shiny. Tell us a little bit, um, I mean, how thick is this issue? It's uh, the biggest one I've ever helped on. Um, I know that the listings immense. themselves are something like 96 editorial pages and the whole bad boy is like 200 it's wow epic. <laughs> yeah so more more like a book yes here indeed. <laughs> um so tell us a little bit about what went into the making of this announcements issue um a lot of work <laughs> uh we get uh, submissions from publishers through um edelweiss mostly um for the listings and so that gets compiled and uh, rewritten and edited um many many times so what we try to do is present um a selection of books that are coming out in the fall uh, that are mostly like, you know, kind of new, original, uh, like no reprints, no activity books, coloring books, maze books, that sort of thing that you get a lot with children's books, but um, kind of the best of the best that are coming out. But it's 
exhaustive. We really try to focus not just on the big publishers, but also the smaller ones as well and independent presses. So we try to curate, I guess, a selection of um, everything that's going to be coming out to help booksellers and librarians curate their own lists, I guess. So when you say the best of the best, these are books that are coming out now through, what, early next year? It's fall and winter. Right, yes. So through January 31st. So how many do you actually get a chance to look at before you put the listings together? Well, the picture books, quite a lot, because that's also where we draw uh, for the spot art that's featured throughout the listings pages. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a, a good portion of it some of them are also the um you know like the really big books are ones that were featured heavily at, at bea so i've seen galleys early you know right. for some of the bigger ones um and then a couple of them we try to uh you know focus on because um next to the listings we have a features package uh where we kind of pull out certain like trends and books that we see uh that are going to be kind of bigger and so we kind of get to spend a little bit more time with those so uh, what trends uh, have surfaced this, well, this season? Well, what I noticed anyway in looking at the listings as they were coming in was a lot more nonfiction than I think I had seen in seasons past, uh, which we turned into one of the, the major feature driving uh the, the issue, which is looking at like whether it is actually like a trend that is happening. We are seeing more of it. It might be helped by Common Core. It might also just be helped uh, be, by... Uh, authors and editors kind of more interested in those sorts of things mm-hmm. um so yeah there's a yeah a, a feature in there where we talk to retailers and editors about nonfiction books that are coming out um and also a, another feature that we did is on mt anderson who's a popular ya fiction writer and he's got a nonfiction book coming out this fall uh technically his second because he also wrote a, a picture book but this is mm-hmm. a novel uh like a novel length narrative uh for teens about uh Sh- dmitry shostakovich the composer oh fantastic yeah and the siege of leningrad so it's really uh the book is really interesting our profile of him is really fascinating because he did a lot of research and um even had to hire a russian-speaking person to do like to go into a, a building in russia to find some like you know, arcane manuscripts. And, oh, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So it's really cool. Well, so with the nonfiction that you're seeing in, uh, in kids' books, is it memoir? Is it history? Uh, like the like the Shostakovich book? What are you seeing? As far as the things that are selling the best, it's definitely a lot of memoir. Um, mm. And then also with, you know, the rise of Minecraft, a lot of strategy guides. Mm, uh, but right. uh, what, I don't know, we, we really see kind of a lot of things. You know, National Geographic always has a really good spread of things. Um, lots of like trivia books and those sorts of things but definitely i would say memoir uh and also just biographies for all ages uh, oh really are really kind of doing well yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how do you see other fiction authors who are kind of veering over into the non-fiction side because i feel like um in science fiction i've seen such a trend of authors who wrote fiction for adults now writing ya fiction i was yeah. wondering if this is the next step in the evolution of the authors that then you go off and write your non-fiction write book, your and, serious book. <laughs> and then and then you write your picture book and then you somehow circle around to adult fiction again. right <laughs> i wouldn't say i've seen a trend of it yet uh but this anderson one is a really big one and uh i wonder if it's something that might happen you know more frequently in the f- going forward but yeah, not, not not enough to see a trend yet, I would say. So what were some of the books that jumped out at you? Uh, um, I personally, if I'm allowed to have my own opinion, Please, <laughs> really, yes, we really love, love the Anderson yeah. book. I picked it up when we were doing galleys to grab for BEA, and I immediately just I was, got really excited about it because it felt like something that I would have loved when I was a teenager because I was interested in that time period in history. Mm-hmm. Russia is something that you don't get a lot of detail about because, you know, they were kind of our 
allies for a hot second before the Cold War hit. Um, and Anderson talks about this in the future, too, where he, you know, we, we get all of these statistics when we study World War II. Like, you know, six million people died in Europe and, you know, there, um, you know how many people died in uh the bombings in Japan, but we don't get a lot, like 27 million people died in the Soviet Union in World War II, which is staggering. And we don't talk about that. And that's, so it's like this huge piece of history that's completely glossed over in American schools. And, um, but he also talks about Dmitry Shostakovich himself. So it's kind of part biography, part history. And, and the composer, you know, he talks about his adolescence and his sort of, it's almost like a Kunstler Roman. It's like his story of becoming Mm -hmm. an artist. Um, and I think that might be really interesting for teenagers, too, to kind of see somebody who grew up in like a really, you know, interesting time. He was very young when um, the revolution happened and, so you know, became the Soviet Union. So you kind of, I don't know, you just see it sort of a, a teenager kind of figuring out who they are amidst huge, like, global chaos. <laughs> so when we say teenager, what, what age are we looking at for this? Um, the book, I think, is, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's recommended for maybe like... 14 and older okay. I would say because right. um, there's some pretty grim stuff in there the siege of Leningrad itself was you know was brutal it lasted yeah. two years the, I think 10 million people died in it and some people resorted to cannibalism which he even talks about wow. in the book yeah to just to survive because the Germans had bombed uh, their food sh- food storages right food storage yeah Wow. Yeah. But um, that, that's one that I, I was really interested in. There's a bunch of really great picture books, too. Like a lot um, that I noticed uh, were like some debut picture book uh, artists making, you know, making their first book yeah. that had done other kinds of art before that. So there are a bunch of I'm really excited about to kind of see where their careers go after this. And some that I, uh, you know, helped pick for the, right. the spot art. <laughs> right. Oh, great. So are picture books, the is that kind of the youngest level we look at? Do you look at board books? We do have books? some board books in here, not so much cloth books. Um, and we don't look at board book reprints, you know, so if it's something that came out in a uh, regular picture book format and then they, you know, translate it to mm. board book, we don't mm. uh, put those listings in print. But um, yeah, uh, there are some board books in here. Anything particularly exciting coming out, says the expectant parent. Right, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, well, you know, I really am fond of the Abrams does this series with Leslie Pratchettelli. Um, they're like, uh, well, first of all, her books are really cute anyway. Uh, she has the Yummy, Yucky, Yes, No, those books. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got this series with um, uh, where it's like kind of Greek myths retold. And they're kind of... Um, They'll always have kind of like a story or sort of a message, but they're really charming and really fun to read. And I think, and you know, they're very sturdy, so they can be chewed upon for many years. <laughs> That's the most important part of a board book. It's yeah. there, there to be eaten by the little bookworms. Um, I also wanted to say, too, we were really excited about our cover artist, Christoph Niemann. Um, to even get him to be able to do the cover was uh, really exciting because he just had this uh, exhibition of his work open up in Vienna. Mm. He was in Berlin at the time, but wow. he still cranked it out, which we were really excited about. It came out really, really well. Really happy with it. Describe him and his book to us. Um, the the cover? The cover, yeah, his work <laughs> and his book. He uh, yeah. started out as an editorial artist um, and did a lot of like covers for uh, The New Yorker and right. New York Times. Um he was uh, one of their visual bloggers, and um, yeah, he's just started uh, kind of breaking out into children's books, um, and he's got a few under his belt. One more recent one last season was The Potato King, which I got really excited about just for personal reasons. Um, it's made with uh, 
I don't know if you ever had to do this when you were a kid um, where you cut open a potato and you make like your own little stamp. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so he did a whole book illustrated in that manner. And I grew up in Idaho. So of course we did that uh, (laughs) art project when we were kids. So it was just really fun to see like a really gifted artist kind of take um, like sort of a fun thing that you actually do when you're a kid and apply that to a children's book. You know, it was really playful and very fun. What a a great concept. Yeah. And and because he's like such an artist, you can, um, the way that they, they photographed his paintings of it too. So you get this really great texture and you can kind of see it on our our cover too. Like his texture is just really amazing. And he does like these kind of multimedia projects. So I was really excited to get him to do that. So um, tell us a little bit about anything else that's in the issue that we should keep an eye out for. Oh, there's a really uh, charming uh, feature, I guess, where we uh, reached out to publishers and people working in publishing and asked them what their favorite read-alouds were. So mm-hmm. we kind of get to hear the books that people actually read at home who make the books. Um, and so there's some really sweet ones, um, uh, like, a, you know, like... A, a couple of editors who just talk about like their their kids' favorite books and their favorite read alouds at home and the big books that there's a really sweet picture of one of the kids who was reading on the sidewalk as he was walking because <laughs> he was so into this book. So yeah, I don't know, there's a couple of really good ones in there. And then we also talk about um, the new Dr. Seuss book, which comes out next Tuesday, uh, the story behind how that was published, and then also kind of a larger look at there's this whole company behind the right. Seuss brand and how... Um, they market and publish, or not market, but they market and promote his books to librarians and booksellers year round. And mm-hmm. they tie it to, oh, wow. you know, some of uh, the popular books, like everybody knows all oh, the places you'll go for graduation. Uh, but they also try to find new ways to get uh, some of the smaller books out. And Hop on pop for Father's Day. Right, there you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, I, um, again, expectant parent, which means I'm on all of these mailing lists and, oh, yes. and I just got the one that you could get five Dr. Seuss books for $5 <laughs> or whatever. And you go to the site and it turns out there's a few Dr. Seuss books, mostly obscure ones. Mm-hmm. And then they start sneaking in some Richard Scarry books. And it's clearly a way oh, yes. to just kind of pull you in and see how many books they can, <laughs> they can sell you. And right. I thought there must be just this huge industry. Yeah. Here. Well, and especially too, cause he worked, uh, on the beginners books um there was like a series you know mm-hmm. so there are a bunch of books that he's kind of associated with but he didn't actually write um like go dog go you know right um so yeah i mean that he's kind of the gateway you know? <laughs> there's right. all these other uh artists and illustrators and, and great books that kind of get tied into that age range too but yeah those are always really good ones you have to have a couple of those yeah oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we will not have a shortage mm-hmm. um and uh on the other end of the age spectrum that you cover what's happening in young adult fiction in the fall um, you know interestingly enough i feel like in, in seasons past it's been easy to kind of see a trend you know like paranormal or right. you know what what have you uh this time around i didn't really see anything trending so much just some kind of you know like as always just really edgy kind of interesting books uh, scott westerfeld is doing a new trilogy with margot lanigan and deborah bancotti uh, i'm that- so excited about this yeah so excited have you read the first one yet? i i have not but uh, it's just it sounds like an incredible project yeah, great I, authors I oh know, tell us right? about, tell us about it yeah. oh, I, I tore through this one uh well mostly because i'm super obsessed with margot lanigan but of course all the authors are very good so um it's really kind of interesting take on superheroes so there's it's like this group of these kids who have these like powers but they only work with other people um you know like one girl can kind of gauge the like the the motions of people in the room and kind of 
twist them, like she can kind of influence like how a whole crowd of people feels, but only works when there's a crowd of people around. Uh, and one guy can um, make people forget him. Like he, he can kind of like be barely sort of perceived. And then as soon as he leaves a room, like whoever he was talking to kind of forgets that they were talking to anybody. Uh, so there's, they all have these kind of interesting right. powers that aren't really powers and they all kind of find each other. And then of course there's like, you know, mega drama and, uh, you know, international drug cartels and such. <laughs> They've got to fight well, the evil, but right. yeah, but no, they're, it, they're, it's really, really good. And the writing is amazing. And, uh, you don't really, <clears throat> the different authors don't like necessarily like, um, you can kind of tell after you've read it, like who's writing which pieces, but they, mm-hmm. they work together really, really well. So each uh, author took, took a couple of different characters, you know? And so, right. uh, yeah, someone's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, very action-packed, adventure <laughs> And how, how's the dystopian trend? Is that on the wane? There's definitely still, still some happening, but I would say it's kind of on the wane. Although there, you know, I mean, there's some, some bigger ones um, that are getting a lot of attention, but I feel like it's nothing like it has been in years past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think things are kind of getting a little bit more... Uh, sort of complicated and like I think especially John Green too you're seeing a little bit more realistic uh fiction um and then definitely I think the work of um organization we need diverse books is helping also bring in uh books by like more diverse writers Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is kind of um there is some sort of fantasy and dystopia but there's also some really great realistic fiction just about different um people's backgrounds so hopefully that will be more of a trend in the future (laughs) Well, sounds great. Well, Natasha, thank you so much yes. for coming in and giving us the rundown. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and uh, and this issue, a lot of this will all go up on our website, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All the actually all everything, but all of the features is live right now. You can look at a lot of the listings, and we even have an exclusive sneak peek at what publishers are going to be sending out in the spring. So you can see wow. some of those right now. Too. Great. Yeah. So thanks again. Thank oh, well, you. Thank you very much. A lot and, of fun. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 